0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking ag trading and about the ag traders. How is ag trading different to the other commodities such as metals and energy? Are they a window into the future on how those commodities might trade, given how transparent and efficient the ag markets are and customer demands over sustainability and traceability? What are the opportunities facing the ag sector, and what are some of the headwinds? Our guest is Jonathan Kingsman. Jonathan has been a trader and analyst in the ag sector for over 40 years, and is a writer and blogger. He's the author of Out of the Shadows, The New Merchants of Grain, among many other books, and has his blog, commodityconversations.com, where you can find interviews, thought pieces on the ag sector, as well as details of the various books he's published. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure, Paul.
0: Thank you for the invitation. I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. I guess before we kind of dig into some of the history or the last 20 years and what's gone on in ag trading and then some of the the future prognostications about the sector, can you help us disambiguate, tease apart the difference between ag trading, what's particular to it compared to the other commodity trading, verticals, energy and mining?
1: Yes, agricultural trading may be a little bit ahead of the curve on the other commodities, particularly metals and oils. When I first started in the business 40 years ago with Cargill in the sugar department, to buy sugar, you had to buy it pretty much from a government agency. And to sell it, you had to sell it to a government agency. Now, the agriculture commodity markets were privatized in that big wave of privatization post-Thatcher and Reagan. So now you're dealing with pretty much private people. And private individuals and private companies, or public companies, but not governments. So governments have stepped out of the agricultural supply chain, and this makes things much more, much easier for traders. There was a lot of corruption in the business when I first started 40 years ago. You had uh, low-paid bureaucrats working for governments in buying agencies, and they were susceptible to being bribed, in a word. And all that has fortunately been swept aside by this wave of privatization. Now, in the in the metals and the oil, there's a less distinction between resource extraction and trading. If you look at Glencore, for example, they are a big mining company, and they have to get involved with governments in terms of permits, etc. But in ags, governments have largely stayed away. So, that's one of the good things. I get the feeling that agriculture is the supply chains are more transparent than other chains. Full, we have fully functioning futures markets, long history of future markets. So there's this price transparency involved. There's also highly competitive markets uh, and a wide ranging democratic spread of information. So it's, it's quite hard if not impossible for an ag trader to make a margin a markup when he buys commodity from one person and sells it from another most people view commodity traders as people that buy from a farmer and then add a huge margin and then sell to a consumer pushing prices down for farmers and prices up for consumers but that doesn't work anymore because these markets are so competitive The second viewpoint that people have of commodity traders is that they are speculators. A friend of my wife says that she doesn't want a speculator between her her food and the farmer that produced it. But in fact, traders don't speculate that wildly and they don't try to manipulate markets because traders tend to stay away from markets with low liquidity, which can be manipulated because they don't want it being manipulated on themselves. Mm. So I think those are probably the differences.
0: There's a couple of points to, to dig in there. One is, and we're going to come on to kind of how the ag market, ag trading, is in some ways that view of the future about where metals and energy are heading, particularly oil, as you said. In general, merchandising, trading in ag is a relatively low margin, even negative margin activity until there are dislocations or events that these global ag trading houses can take advantage of. Is that a fair statement? And can you unpick that for
1: us? Absolutely. So most of the big traders now have tried to have very long supply chains. And what they're looking to do is to try to make a tiny margin on each stage of that, moving the commodity along that supply chain. But It's so efficient and so competitive that, as you say, in fact, the margins along there are sometimes negative or usually negative. So you can't make any money from buying from A and selling to B. So what these traders have to do is they have to look for mispricings at every stage of the supply chain and take advantage of those mispricings. And that, of course, helps the market work better and makes it more efficient. So they're looking for these mispricings at each stage along the supply chain, but by having a global footprint and a complete overview of the supply chain, they actually can see times and can profit from times when the outright price, not the differential prices, when the outright price is mispriced. So this really happens at times of market disruption. Something's happened There's a trade war started, government intervention or more likely to be weather a drought or a a flood or a freeze somewhere and that market disruption means that the outright price is mispriced and these traders can make quite considerable amounts of money at that time on the overall market but they have to be involved at every stage and to be moving this these commodities because otherwise they don't see that so you have to be in it to play it
0: and we'll come on to i think how that's been a part of driving the consolidation along with other market conditions there's one more other other very prosaic observation to make which is in the case of metals and energy it's much easier to predict supply as per resources put in right if you're going to build a mine you don't have to face the the nature of crop yields climatic impacts and so forth There's a much more dynamic supply side in the agricultural
1: space. Yes, absolutely. The number one driver is the weather. The number two driver, funnily enough, is price. So there's a quite a long lag feedback mechanism between price and supply. So this creates a, a very cyclical nature of for agricultural commodities. The prices go up, farmers plant, they plant too much, prices go down, and then prices stay down for quite a long time and because they've already planted the crop and they bought the seeds etc and they're producing they've got the equipment so agricultural prices can stay low for longer than most people think they can and that means that when they do move they move quite a bit and quite violently so there's volatility in agricultural prices driven by this feedback mechanism of price and that of course makes it quite difficult for for publicly quoted companies, for example, because you get large profits during a up period, when you get a period of market disruption or after a long period of low supply. And then you get years of low prices, negative margins, very low profits. And if you have shareholders, they want to see business growing every year. They want to see fairly even earnings. And that doesn't happen in agricultural commodities.
0: Yeah, those earnings, when they are happening, get discounted because they're seen as cyclical and trading in lead. So it's, uh, it is a tough space. I think that's a, a great start, a great intro into some of the nuances of ag trading, which I think is fascinating to compare to the other two verticals. The last 20 years, there's a couple of themes I want to pick out and dig into. Firstly, I think it's fair to say that the agricultural commodity markets and the the traders themselves their fortunes have risen and fallen largely in line with the broader commodity supercycle so there was a great 2000s uh, a less great 2010s and now there seems to be a, a return to form first off is, is is that a fair statement in your in your
1: perspective absolutely And as I said, the trading companies can make small profits by taking advantage of mispricings on differentials all along the supply chain, but they really come into their own and they really add value when there's a dislocation, for example, would be Trump trade wars. So China doesn't want, didn't want to buy soybeans from the US, so they bought them from Brazil. So if you're originating from Brazil as well as from the US then you can meet that supply but it's during the times when the market is severely dislocated and the flat prices are dislocated that these trade houses really add value and they really make the money
0: yeah so the first big theme to pick on is consolidation you have seen this continuing consolidation amongst the number of trading houses that actually are active merchandising ag products. There's also been a little bit of splintering as well. There hasn't been so much vertical integration that's been going on. But that consolidation, I assume, has been in large part driven by ever more efficient markets and that need to have longer and longer supply chains so that you can both see and then enact on those periods or dislocation or price mismatching absolutely
1: so if you're an ag trader you want the longest supply chains possible and the biggest global footprint possible and so that means that you really have to be big to be involved Another point is that some of the smaller the smaller traders have been getting out or being absorbed because they haven't got that global footprint or the long supply chain, but also because they've been lacking access to finance. The banks are not keen on financing small traders. They need to have the security and the confidence and that's uh, to be involved in financing bigger. Traders And there's a certain momentum, there's a certain snowball effect that happens here is that as you get bigger, you make more profits and um, you can invest more and get bigger. For example, Cargill invests about 80%, invest 80% of their profits back into the business and then distributes 20%. So Cargill made $4.3 billion in the first months of this financial year. So that's a huge amount of money that they can reinvest by moving along the supply chains, strengthening their position in supply chains, and going into other businesses. So there's a natural tendency for the bigger companies to get bigger and the smaller ones to drop out. But yeah. having said that, among the grain companies, it's quite difficult at the moment to see further consolidation. Everybody's been looking at it over the last 20 years. Glencore thought about buying Dreyfus and thought about buying Bunge cofco thought about buying Dreyfus, so and they haven't because it's quite difficult to integrate these different companies with the different philosophies but also there's antitrust issues particularly in the states in terms of market share so the top seven companies in the grains count for probably 50 percent of the seaborne trade in grains and oil seeds yeah just on that last point. In the last 40 years, with 30 years, we've seen two companies drop out, Uh, we've seen Andre close and Continental Grain close. But we've gained two more we've gained uh, Viterra Glencore and Kofco, And also ADM has taken more of a role in moving large volumes of commodities around. So it's still pretty competitive. Yeah,
0: and I, we'll come back to that because there's a couple of points I want to come back to there. One is, is obviously liquidity because there is this issue as well about banks not wanting to be part of financing food or the, the ag trading space for a variety of more optics than than reality. But as you say, yeah, there's also this kind of – Costco represents this national champion – factor that's sort of come into play over the last decade as as countries, as regions look to secure food supply in the wake, in part, I think, of what happened in the Arab Spring. I know that's a big statement just to leave hanging, but we'll come back to it. The other really interesting, so you've had this consolidation, which has always been part of the ag, ag space, driven by this in- incredible efficiency and transparency into how the markets work, and that it's largely private sector-led. The other, the other sort of trend, at least I've seen over the last decade, has and I assume this has happened in every period of downturn and lower earnings in trading, is there's been this little bit of an existential crisis about is ag trading ever going to be profitable and be a driver of the future for these organizations? Because you had a sustained period of low prices, low earnings, and the question really out there was... At the same time, there was ever more increases in efficiency, ever more increases in transparency. You had algorithmic trading startup. You had all these other financial participants coming in. You have farmers with Wi-Fi on their tractors with local markets available to them you know, on a screen on their tractor as they're um, harvesting. The question out there was, is it margins going to be so small and there's going to be fewer and fewer opportunities to make those outsized returns because there's going to be fewer and fewer dislocations or less transparency about price mismatches that these organizations needed to, to move beyond just their ag trading bulk trading platforms and start building further down the value chain to the right of the value chain so you've seen cargill do this you've seen adm do this very clear about wanting to get into food and flavors and ingredients and really kind of integrate down the the value chain
1: it's all about For the bigger companies, it's all about efficiency and driving down costs, either through economies of scale or trying to make the segments of the supply chain more efficient. So in periods of low volatility, periods when the markets aren't disrupted, then it's extremely tough for traders, commodity merchandisers to make money. But there are still mispricings at many points along the supply chain, so they can still get buy. And the idea is that you hang in there, you maintain your client relationships, you try and increase efficiency, you introduce the latest technologies, you build up the, the teams that you need, so that when the market does is disrupted for one reason or another, then you can take full advantage of that changes at the flat price. Now, many times, it's quite difficult for companies to know what to invest their profits in. And uh, this has been a a major problem since forever, basically, is that trading house will make lots of money in, in a bull market and then try to say, well, how can I make more money in the low market? So they'll try and go into different sectors, for example, property. That's one thing, hotel management. For example, Robert Kwok of the Wilmar fame founded the Shangri-La hotel chain, which has been very profitable and very successful. So these companies do try to invest outside the sector to try and even out those profits in the period of down prices. They also try to move along the supply chain a little bit, but there it's difficult because they can find themselves competing against their customers who don't like it, or they find themselves in businesses that they don't uh, really understand. If you go too far towards the consumer, then you become a brand manager. And that's a very different skill than being a commodity trader. So it's quite difficult for a vegetable oil producer to retail vegetable oil in supermarkets. They do it. Um, and they have been successful. Wilma has been successful in China. Bungi has been very successful in Brazil. But it's not the, the core business. If they go the other way in ags, they can end up in farming, which is a completely different type of business. And both Dreyfus and Bungi invested heavily into sugar cane in Brazil. And because of the dependence, it's really farming. The mills produce, they grow their own. lot of their own cane they didn't know how to farm they didn't like it they were both fairly disastrous investments which they both now managed to sort out by putting them into joint venture vehicles with other companies so it's quite difficult to move along the supply chain and quite difficult to try to go into other businesses so some will will be going into businesses which are connected for example flavors and feed different ingredients to try and turn their commodity business into an ingredient business. Uh, so they're not taking, they're not price takers in a commodity market, but they'll be price setters in a ingredients market. That's happened in coffee with the, a lot of the new specialty coffees being sold in the specialty sector. So they're adding to add profits there, margins there. And ADM is doing that successfully with. Ingredients and different elements of decommoditizing their business. But ADM, remember, was never a really major bulk commodity trader. They're an industrial company that traded and still trade commodities for their own business. So they trade when they need to and not all the time. So remember the ABCD which people talk now about is ADM, Bungi, Cargan and Dreyfus. The original A was Andre, not ADM.
0: Yeah, I think I certainly agree on how challenging that is. And I, knowing ADM very well, except that they, I think they're well better positioned to make those kind of uh, expansions or connecting to adjacent marketplaces. And they have proved that as well, right? You can see that in their results. Absolutely. But in typical, the challenge I see is twofold. One is, as you say, these are very different businesses. Commodities actually has a a much different um, investment cycle, much more simpler uh, assets. Very much, you know, R and D doesn't exist in many ways, right? Compared to getting into the consumer side of things, or, or further to the right of the value chain or even up to the seed side. The other is actually surviving success because those um, strategies and plans work well in down markets and they, they go well over to the analysts. But as soon as results start ticking back up, like we're seeing now, it's hard to maintain those, those investments which suddenly don't look as profitable, look much more long-term against what looks like an incredibly lucrative trading platform. It's almost a uh, a double-edged sword as well when markets return.
1: Because these companies are suddenly making huge profits out of trading and merchandising. And then they're saying, well, actually, is my particular, I don't know, bottle oil or my ingredients uh, sector or my flavors or whatever it is, is that a core business? In the case of ADM, it definitely is because I said ADM is more of an industrial company. They're certainly used to managing these different segments so they've been very successful in those others it's a little bit tougher and i know Dreyfus, for example is doing a very good job in trying to get into different segments and different sectors and to decommoditize their business to be a supply chain manager and a food company but they are really by nature an excellent trading company so that's what makes it a little bit difficult Yes, yes.
0: Okay, moving on from that, we've sort of touched on this idea that ag trading, ag markets are almost potentially a window into the future for other commodity verticals, whether that's metals, whether that's oil, whatever it might be in the nature that they are, I mean, you and I have talked offline, but, you know, almost arguably 10, 20 years advance in the nature of their exchanges, the transparency. You've always mentioned governments. Can you just dig into that and give us how you think other commodity traders could look at ag and position themselves for what changes might probably come down the pike for them?
1: The thing about agriculture is that it's food and everybody cares very much about the food that they eat. They don't want the food that they eat to have damaged the environment. First of all, they don't want it to be bad for them, but secondly, they don't want it to be damaged the environment or have impinged on anybody's social rights. They certainly don't want any child labor or slave labor. And they don't want any deforestation. And so consumers want full traceability from their plate or their cup right back to the farm and there's a number of different initiatives that are going on for example there's a farmer connect in coffee which where the when you go and buy your cup of coffee in a, a coffee shop you can scan the qr code and you can see exactly where the coffee comes from and all the stages that it's taken to get to your cup so there's a tremendous emphasis on traceability and basically the social development goals which are in agriculture basically, which is the farmer needs to receive a fair price for his product. There's been no environmental damage along the way and no infringement of human rights. And this is coming in metals and it's coming in oil. If it's not, it's, it's starting there, but it's really a tidal wave that's going to hit these markets because people care now much more and they have a huge power there's been a big shift towards the consumer in terms of power through social media and how people can react and communicate so buyer of an electric car is buying that car because he wants to do good for the planet he wants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and he wants to feel good about it if he has a slight worry that it's has um, been produced from you know, the batteries come from a mine where child labor is involved or the environment's been damaged then he doesn't really want to buy that car
0: apple and tesla have also publicly stated that by various time goals you know they want to be able to provide a hundred percent surety to their customers on the provenance of each of the metal components or whatever it might be in their products absolutely what has that done? I mean, what has that, so you've, you've had that in ag for a very long time. How has that then impacted commodity trading, the markets? Has that been a a net positive? Because you've got more, the capacity to differentially
1: price different types of grains. What has that done? Economic, uh, social and environmental sustainability have become a must have for any agricultural commodity. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that consumer will pay more for it. He just doesn't want to buy it if it's not. So a consumer will pay more for something that he perceives to be better for his health, for example, organic food, but he won't necessarily pay, unfortunately, more for something that's been produced sustainably. So that's a major challenge for the trade houses and indeed for farmers and that has kind of squeezed margins further because they insist on traceability and certification and that has a cost. Traceability doesn't gel very well with tradability. So if you're putting in a vertically integrated supply chain then you have to move it from one particular farm to the consumer. So if there's a problem in one country because of weather or government intervention, then it makes it harder to react. So that's reduced the tradability side of agricultural commodities. So those are probably the two main things. But one thing I'd like have really have to mention is that everybody wants to do this and we're insisting on it, but it's actually very, very tough to do. I'll give you the example of cocoa where in West Africa, the cocoa supply chain suffers from deforestation, but particularly from child and slave labor on the farms, very small farms, very poor people. They haven't got schools to go to, so the children end up working on the farms, and the prices are too low, so the, the farmers employ their children rather than outside people. So it's been very difficult, and it's an ongoing challenge to try to obtain a clean supply chain for cocoa. It's not easy, and I think it will be very difficult as well in metals and in oil, because the governments are involved. There's a higher risk of corruption in, in metals and oil than there are in eggs. And so it's you've got further to go in those commodities.
0: I find that fascinating statement and intelligible, of course, traceability and tied to sustainability or whatever particular ESG qualities you're looking for actually reduces the tradability? What do you therefore see in, in maybe 10 or 20 years' time when actually there's so much more capacity, whether it's through who knows, blockchain or or Internet of Things, to trace commodities from provenance to track these attributes through? Does that fundamentally change the nature of trading? And does that mean that as we further drive for these trading houses to vertically integrate, or, or does it go the complete opposite and actually everyone deintegrates and we've just got more micro, you know, the, the the lots are smaller, but they're still a very active traded market, and all these attributes are priced at different levels.
1: What happens in the end is that everything becomes sustainable in the ags. It has to, because consumers don't want something that's not sustainable so this momentum is there and it will continue so at the moment i don't know maybe five or two to six percent of eggs are certified i'm not sure if that figure is correct but it's a very small percentage of ag production is certified as sustainable and that has will get bigger over time and It's not just in the Western world that everyone says, well, China, they don't care what they buy, but that's not true. The Chinese consumer is very, very picky about the food that they eat and where it comes from. And there's been a number of uh, food frauds and food scandals in China. And so the momentum is there as well. So this is a global momentum. And what that means is that you have these supply chains and you can... In 10 years, 20 years' time, it won't be just a coffee drinker in, in a coffee shop that can find out where his coffees come from. But when you buy your loaf of bread, you'll sure be able to find where the wheat comes from, etc. <laughs> so, and this is going to happen on electric cars and oil as well, I believe. So effectively, yes, this is a
0: case of you'll be shut out of the markets if you don't meet these standards. And there'll be this sort of, you know, subprime market, whatever horror that might look like but in order to participate at a global level in any of these supply chains in the future we can look to ag to say actually it's not a case of being able to charge more it's a case of being able to participate absolutely and all organizations all leadership need to be thinking about how how do they meet a level of sustainability that
1: would be acceptable to the general public on balance absolutely and it's also a question of finance because if you can't prove that you're running sustainable supply chains, then the banks won't finance you. So it's it's not a question of a sort of a wanting or an option. It's there's no choice. The ag companies are becoming sustainable. They're managing sustainable supply chains and it's the only way they can maintain their finance and their social license to operate. Which is a very mm-hmm. key word, key phrase, social license to operate. Unless you can be seen to be adding value and doing good and not doing bad, then you'll lose that social license to operate. Very important. Yeah.
0: I want to just go back if possible and just dig a bit more into that idea of the transparency and the efficiency of the agricultural trading space and perhaps make quite a sweeping statement, but I would suggest that you've seen far more outsized returns from hedge funds or whomever, directional traders, in less transparent markets like oil and metals than you can see in the ag space simply because there is that efficiency, there is that transparency, and any mismatches get quickly corrected unless there's this some outsized sigma event, you know, black swan type thing that they can take advantage of. So that kind of central question of unless you have that global footprint, unless you have that asset base, and that sort of one of the big four, seven, it's becoming increasingly harder to make money as an individual trader, as a, a small trading team. Is that a fair statement? And do you think that will eventually become the case in global markets like metal, oil, energies,
1: etc.? I think so. Because as markets become more efficient and more transparent, the differentials between the different points in the supply chain diminish. And therefore, you have to become you have to have more of them, you have to have a longer supply chain, you have to have a little bit more optionality while maintaining traceability. So you'll find that the supply chains have to be long and the footprint has to be global. So, And you have to be sustainable because you don't get the finance from the banks unless you do. Mm.
0: That teases up nicely to move on to so, the challenges that ag traders face, and then some of what you see as the the opportunities in the commodity supercycle and the and the future of of ag trading in those ag houses, talking about the challenges, I think you've really powerfully highlighted for us that the social licence to trade and operate, and that is supported by actually getting commodity trade finance, you know, the banks supporting these organisations, and that being a real live debate and challenge at the moment and all this is driven by this idea of traceability and sustainability. One of the things, just coming back to what you mentioned there about, okay, if you are going to try and you know, make money out of ag trading, you do need to have this global footprint and you do need to have assets. Having assets, as you've noted in, in your notes to me, like has you know, become essential. But it's a it, that that can in itself be really challenging. We've certainly seen that in in the energy space. You know, you've seen lots of a move into assets in oil trading. You know, owning gas stations, owning big pipelines, terminals, and the, you know the challenges that brings. What do you mean that by assets have become essential? And what are the challenges for these these ag houses in owning them?
1: Well, one of the challenges is that they're industrial assets, so it makes it harder for them to operate because. If you take, for example, a soybean crushing plant, it has to keep crushing all the time, and the important thing is the capacity utilisation. So, if you're a, if you're a big soybean processor, for example, like Bunge, you can't say, "Oh, actually, the margins aren't there at the moment, or I'm not happy. I think I don't can't read the market. I'll step out of the market. I'll close it down." That's not how these assets work. So they have to work all the time and with the highest possible capacity utilization to reduce costs. So that can be a little bit of a constraint, but at the same time, assets do give you flexibility. They do give you something to trade around. There's an old expression about never sell from an empty wagon, never trade from an empty wagon. So you can use your assets to trade around them, particularly in terms of warehousing and storage. You can see that in sugar refining for example a lot of these sugar refineries that are around the world now are in fact great big sugar warehouses and so you can really play the spreads and the different calendar spreads and the differentials so that adds tremendous flexibility to the supply chain
0: so the another challenge that you've highlighted is there
1: is this Tendency
0: or potential signals that governments are getting back involved. I mentioned earlier this sort of national champion concept. COFCO was very clearly backed by the Chinese government as its organization to uh, secure food supplies for China. I mean, you saw similar efforts in by Saudi Arabia. More recently, you've seen the Russian government involved around, obviously, wheat exports. Is this becoming a more politicized space? And do you think that... Um, this poses a challenge
1: to the private sector. Kofco uh, certainly presents a challenge to, it's a formidable competitor to the traditional agricultural trading houses. And they got off to a, a rocky start, but they've really got the act together. They're being working well as a team together, and they are extremely ag- aggressive and successful in moving flows to. China. So they have a little bit of an advantage there because they might have a better reading of the Chinese domestic market or future government policy in China. And so this does give them a little bit of an advantage. China, of course, is is the main buyer for agricultural commodities. So they have a little bit of an advantage there. And it's a challenge for likes of Bongi and Dreyfus, etc. There's also the possibility some traders argue that they operate under different terms, in in other words, that they're not really looking at the moment to make returns, to make profits. Their role is to feed the dragon. But I think in feeding the dragon, they're making good returns. So I'm not sure that that's correct. The one area where governments are coming back in is is there's danger of government coming back in is in Russia. The grain business has largely been under the radar of the Russian government for a long time because they've seen the, the profits coming in and the revenues coming in from oil. But they're becoming more involved now in the grain exports There's a state-owned bank, VTB, which has been buying up terminals, export terminals in the Black Sea, set up a little trading house overseas. So. It's a question, it's further competition for the traditional trading houses. So that, that is a further challenge, but we've talked a lot about the challenges, but there are some tremendous opportunities for the trade houses as well for the agricultural houses, because we're going through this revolution at the moment. The world is of decarbonization and that puts tre- tremendous and it's happening quickly and it's got to happen quickly, but it presents huge opportunities for the ag traders
0: and i want to end on that because i think that's a, that's the one of the most powerful topics to cover there's one other big challenge which i know is very close to your heart is absolutely close to mine is talent as well And i see that being twofold one is ultimately there has been limited investment in the next generation or generations in the ag trading sector that's in part being by a decade of downturns there's also some other more structural issues there people's locational preferences many of these entry level graduate roles and trainee roles in the ag trading world are in far flung grain elevators and and so forth that pose more trouble now than they perhaps did in the past when people have partners who are typically have equally important careers etc and the other big challenge and is really stark and is is diversity. Like all of the commodity world, it is ruled by leadership in, for the most part, is older white men. And I think, you know, irrespective of the future option we're going to come on to, that does pose a real challenge to the ag sector as a whole. And I'd just like to get your take on that.
1: I'm working on a, writing a new book at the moment on the, the agricultural commodities, wheat, corn, Coffee, etc., and interviewing the top traders in each of those commodities. And you're 100% right; they're all old white men. And that's not a criticism because I'm an old white man as well. But the commodity sector, the trading sector, suffers enormously from a lack of diversity. And the best tea, commodity trading is a team-based operation. It's just not. It may be presented as a sort of James Bond-like thing of somebody flying in and doing a deal. But it's all team-based, and the best teams are diverse, gender diverse, uh, race diverse, uh, religion diverse. And to be able to remain competitive and to be a leader in the sector, the commodity trading companies, the agricultural ones certainly, need to attract more diversity. And... It needs to do this by one way. It can do this is by improving its image. The image of commodity traders, as I started off, is not terribly good. They looked as looked as speculators, corrupt, and other sort of negative attributes applied to them. So I think the trade, the commodity traders, need to get the message out as to what they do and what their role is and where they add value, and to attract more diverse candidates. And then once you've got them, integrate them into the team, beat a few old white men around the head and say, look, you've got to run this team and bring more diverse people into it. And the future of the companies depend on that.
0: I think it's a shame that – and this is in part, I think, why the podcast exists and certainly HC Insider exists side is the only stories that sort of seem to creep out of the commodity sector are the salacious ones, right? The, the James Bond-esque type stories, of which many are significantly dated. And the second point to make is that I see, we see as an organization, real serious intent by leadership in all of the organizations to tackle the issue. And finally – and this ties up with your statement about the opportunity, is that in reality, the one of the sectors in the world that can most change the world through improving sustainability, tackling environmental issues, is the commodity sector, because they're also responsible for many of the egregious actions in the past. And so for young individuals looking to, uh, looking at any sector where they can really make a difference, this is almost, to my mind, ground zero, uh, that, aligns really nicely with the fact that, like you have just stated, that the opportunity to tackle sustainability is is really also the, one of the opportunities for the ag sector in general. I'd love to sort of yeah get your, whether you agree with that statement and love to understand how that presents the best opportunity for them.
1: Absolutely. It is the future. The decarbonization of the world is the future of Agriculture and is going to happen quickly, and there's an awful lot of work to do. There's a lot of different statistics or numbers or percentages thrown around, but greenhouse gas emissions from food production are anywhere between 20 or 25 percent to 40 percent of total greenhouse gases emissions. So, if a young person was interested in trying to do something for the world to do something for global warming then this is a ri- agriculture and the food supply chain and agricultural trading is a really good place to start and is a good place to begin and where you can make a real difference so we need young people motivated young people who to come into the business and to make a difference
0: and if the commodity trading houses are going to have a few years of, of windfall of, of excess profits, rather than putting into hotels and so forth. This represents an incredible investment opportunity to be part of decarbonization and to leave from the front.
1: Now, I think you've talked to Walter Cronin about renewable diesel and ethanol and the role that biofuels can play in, in a short-term period while the electric vehicles come in. But there's very big changes occurring at the moment, some massive themes within that decarbonation that carbonization space. First one, of course, is meat. FAO reckons that meat production is responsible for 14.5% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. So there's a big move away from meat to alternative proteins. Bungies have invested in beyond meat and others are investing and keeping around yeah, an space. So you're seeing a structural shift in consumption patterns based on the environment. The second theme, of course, is re- regenerative for agriculture, trying to reduce that carbon footprint of agriculture itself, carbon capture, and the trade houses are very involved in that. Just a, it's a bit of a silly example, but if you look at Cargill, they made a recent investment in a startup which is making masks for cows to capture the methane from their burps. And that's something that's off the wall and weird, but could make a, a big dent or a small dent in that 14.5% of greenhouse gas emissions. So the agricultural world is in upheaval because of this, the renewable diesel, because of ethanol, because of the move away from meat, and because of regenerative the move towards regenerative agriculture. So it's a very exciting place for a young person to be in and I'd recommend it enormously.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking back over the last few roles that we placed in the ag sector. Uh, It has been plant protein, leadership group for a a venture there and in biofuels um, of all types. So there is that investment going on. Well, Jonathan, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast. I know we're, we at HCR avid followers of your blog, Commodity Conversations. And uh, yeah, it's been a real privilege to have you on and, and get your insight.
1: Well, thank you very much for giving me the time. I've greatly enjoyed chatting and I love your podcasts. So I will recommend them to everybody.
0: Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, look forward to having you on again in the future at some point. With pleasure. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.